Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and this is um, pretty big. This is the first time you guys have seen my face, if you're watching on Rumble in a couple weeks now. There have been some uh, lighting issues. I had some issues getting the green screen quite worked out, but we are good to go now. And so I'm glad to have video back up and running. Um, we will be continuing our study in Romans today. And we've been plowing through Romans for quite some time now, but we're stepping into um, the closing wave of Romans, starting in verse 12 and going through the 16. And we are stepping into a section that is less theologically defined, in the sense that it's not this heavy theological definitions, and um, we're not doing like systematic theology here. We're, we're talking practical and so Romans 12 is really good. It's a really good chapter to meditate on and to ponder. It's one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. And we will be finishing Romans 12 this week. And then the following Sunday, we'll be doing a special message outside of Romans for Resurrection Sunday. And then the following day, there will be a special interview um, between uh, me and Mr. Claude Ramsey from the Here I Stand Theology podcast. And we will be talking about living the living out the truth of the resurrection after easter and so i'm very excited to get that out and share that with you guys so be looking out for that and so without further ado do let us dive into romans 12 picking up in verse 3. And there's a lot to break down here but i feel like it's all connected it all has to be taken together so paul has been exhorting us to renew our thinking in light of the gospel. And now we get to the application of that idea. He's, it's been practical in those first two verses, but now it's more detailed in that application. Our thinking is not just for the lecture hall. The point of our sanctification is our walk. So when God renews our mind, it's not just for our thought process, it's not just for our test scores, but it gets into everything. So let's dive into what Paul says, that we who are being renewed, how we should walk. So picking up in verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So Paul reiterates what he said in verse 2. We have to think a certain way. That there is a way of thinking 
that we ought to avoid, and a way of thinking that we ought to strive for. But ultimately, the right thinking directs our thinking outside of ourselves. Through the medium of paradox, G.K. Chesterton illuminates this for us and demonstrates why our thinking must externalize. And he writes in his book, Orthodoxy, For I can tell you, I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames the fixed star of certainty of success. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. He said mildly that there were a good many men, after all, who believed in themselves and who were not in lunatic asylums. Yes, there are, I, re I retorted, and you of all men ought to know them. That drunken poet from whom you would not take a dreary tragedy, he believed in himself. That elderly minister with an epic from whom you were hiding in a back room, he believed in himself. If you consulted your business experience instead of your ugly individualistic philosophy, you would know that believing in himself is one of the commonest signs of a rotter. Actors who can't believe in themselves and debtors who won't pay. It would be much truer to say that a man will certainly fail because he believes in himself. Complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. Believing utterly in oneself is a hysterical and superstitious belief like believing in Joanna Southcote. The man who has it has Hanwell written on his face, as plain as is written on the omnibus. And to all this, my friend, the publisher, made this very deep and effective reply. Well, if a man is not to believe in himself, in whom is he to believe? After a long pause, I replied, I will go home and write a book to answer that question. And this is the book that I've written to answer it. That's a big quote, I know. But basically, this is part of a, a, a discussion between the author, G.K. Chesterton, and a journalist who made a comment that someone will succeed because they believe in themselves. But Chesterton is making it pretty clear that even the psychos in the, in the ward believe in themselves. That it's really strange to believe in yourself as temporary and limited as you are. We ought to believe in something higher than ourselves. And Paul is saying that we ought not think highly of ourselves, for we are not truly that great. Consider Jeremiah 17. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man who trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the, the heath in the desert, and sh shall not see when good comes but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land that is not inhabited. But blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh. But her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, and according to the fruit of his doings. Our trust and belief is founded on something outside of us. 
Martin Luther once said that the majority of the Christian life is actually outside of you. The renewing of our minds shows us that we are not self-sufficient, and we are in need of God to do what we can't. We are not the supermen. We have not transcended the need for God. We have transcended the belief that we have. That is true growth. To become less independent, it is one of the great paradoxes of Christianity that we, our growth lies in realizing we can't. That the more we grow, the more we can't do. So we ought not think highly of ourselves, as Paul says. And it goes on to continue fleshing this out. Verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. In ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows, no, who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So where does this new perspective take us? To church. It draws us to a community of other people that are just as de dependent on God as we are. We gather as people in need of God. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 12-13. We have all received the same grace, the same faith, and in the same one. <coughs> We have something in common, our need for the gospel, which makes the spiritually dead come alive. So in light of this, Paul calls the church in Rome to co-labor for God with the gifts that he has given them. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We have all been given gifts for the glory of God and the edification of the saints. We have received gifting, these giftings ultimately to draw each other closer to God, to glorify God. That is why some preach, why some have incredible faith, why some are encouragers by nature. Each of these gifts that Paul describes here is from God and is useful to build up his church in godliness. Each of these gifts, let me be clear, could be the subject of an independent biblical study that we could devote copious amounts of time to drawing out all of the biblical texts about what it means to preach or what it means to have faith or what it means to exhort. They are, each are well established by scripture. But this, there is one reason. But this is one reason that Paul begins this portion by telling us not to think highly of ourselves. Because you are not the treasure of the church. The gospel is. 
Anything we offer the church is not the top priority. It's all about Christ. These gifts are about Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, He being Christ is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We have similar phrasing in First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. <clears throat> in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So then, our gifts are both from God and for God. And we ought to act according to that fact. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Here Paul's writing style changes. Up to this point, he's been writing very... Up to this point, he's been writing very long, fluent, extravagant statements, producing very grand theological truths. His sentences become very simple, almost proverbial. And the focus of these Pauline proverbs is our internal change being worked outwards. He encourages us to live with each other according to the grace that is in us. So he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. In this present age, this verse could be over every doorpost. For these two statements are not contradictions. We live in a day where love is defined as an affirmation of our own destructive decisions. But love, as the Bible describes it, is rooted in goodness. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So, Paul in Galatians is talking about the things that flow from being filled with the Spirit. And he starts by listing love. That's first. And I believe that Dr. J.V. Fesco... In his book on the fruit of the spirit, he knocks it out of the park with explaining why this is so important that he starts with love, joy, and peace. And this is applicable to our study in Romans because you can't separate the framework of the Christian life from the fruit of the spirit. We've got to take them together. Now he's talking about the same thing in different words here. That Romans is more like a skeleton imagery. But the Galatians, he describes it like a tree, like fruit. 
and J.V. Fesco makes this remark. When we think of the first triad of characteristics, love, joy, and peace, we know that these words have been defined in various different ways by the world. But within the context of scriptures, there are unique definitions to them. To love is not to be filled with a warm, fuzzy emotion, though I am sure at times it can involve such feelings. Rather, at the center of love is a sacrifice and selflessness. Christ's own love for us is manifest in that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Love is one of the chief qualities that must mark God's people, which is manifest in a love for God, expressed through obedience, as well as love for one another. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments, 1 John 5, 2. True love is set in total antithesis to the world's perversion of it, sexual immorality, orgies, idolatry, enmity, and jealousy. <clears throat> in short, love is listed first because it is the precondition of all that follows. Our conduct of Christians banks on two factors, our love, our love for God and our love for others. Upon this, the Christian life is founded. And the Bible defines love as being rooted in truth. We are to love people enough to point them to the way. And it is like Bunyan describes in The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress is a, a book from the 1600s. It's an allegory describing the Christian journey using the imagery of an adventure. And the main character, his name is Christian, and he has found a copy of the Bible and he's read it. And he is broken with conviction over his sin. And when we come into the, the story in chapter 1, he is weeping in the woods. And this man named Evangelist finds him. And he talks to him and says, Wherefore dost thou cry? Why are you crying? And he answered, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die. And after that, to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. And Evangelist responds with truth in love. And he says, do you see yonder wicked gate? And the man said, no. Then said the other, do you see yonder shining light? And he said, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, keep that light in your eye and go directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate at which when thou knockest, it shall be told what thou must do. Evangelist had enough love for Christian, whom he had never met, to direct him to truth and to the light of the city of God. And that is what is modeled for us in the New Testament. Our love and abhorrence of evil is to direct people to the light of Christ. This conduct described in this text goes beyond the happy feelings. Because it also says, be kindly affectionate to one another brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in, not lacking in diligence. Again, loving each other when it's hard and making an effort for it. But it also says, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. 
that it tells us to bless those who persecute us and to weep with those who are weeping. We join arms with people when life gets hard. The road is difficult, which is what Paul is preparing us for. A life that is difficult. Dealing with difficult emotions and difficult circumstances. But they all find their purpose through the lens of the gospel. We talked last week about renewing our mind. And this is why. These qualities are not necessarily things the world puts value in. To cultivate meekness is not something that's going to make you popular with the carnal world. But, but God called us here while we were in such a state. We weren't meek when God came to us. We were not patient when, we were not patient when God came to us, when God found us. Because you didn't find God, God found you. And when God did find you, you were not love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. That was not where you lived, because that is fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we were in the flesh. Consider Deuteronomy 9. Not for thy righteousness, or for the uprightness of thine heart, dost thou go to possess this land, means promised land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God did drive them out from before thee. And that he may perform the word which the Lord swore unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. The Israelites didn't enter the promised land because they were good people, because they were more righteous than the other nations. Moses, speaking by the Holy Spirit, is making it very clear that the promised land is a gift by God's mercy. They did not deserve to enter the promised land, and yet God in his grace gave it to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. There is not a single person of us that is not found in that list. That's all of us. Verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we're not righteous, but we're counted as righteous by the grace of God. It's by his mercy that good things happen to us. Psalm 136, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Give thanks unto the God of gods. For his mercy endureth forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his mercy endureth forever. For him who alone does great works. For his mercy endureth forever. Because of the grace of God. Because of things like love, goodness. Because of the grace of God, things like love, goodness, patience, gentleness, and others are accessible to us. We are 
these things are produced by the work of God in, around, and through us, not by our own devices. My favorite hymn is Rock of Ages. And there's this beautiful stanza in Rock of Ages that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. <clears throat> we bring nothing to the table here, which is why we can carry the cross, because we're not carrying anything else. My hands are empty. I bring nothing to the king but dirty rags. And he has taken my dirty rags away and clothe me in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that's the grace of God. I've heard it said that grace is an acronym for God's riches at Christ's expense. And that is where we live. We are clothed in the righteousness of God because we have no righteousness of our own. <clears throat> Another quote from J.V. Fesco on the Holy Spirit. It says, if the Lord showed us kindness and goodness when we were his enemies, then as those indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we must show kindness and goodness to others, even to our enemies, rather than look for revenge or respond in sarcasm or anger. <clears throat> our desire should be to respond in kindness and goodness to show to others, especially those within the church, the love that we have received through Christ. <coughs> Moving on to verse 16. We now move from love and joy to peace. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not, do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For as it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if, you're, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire in his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The first of the virtues listed in the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. In a sense, there is this holy trifecta among these virtues. Now, you can't separate these different aspects. They are not fruits of the Spirit, but fruit of the Spirit. Nonetheless, these first three seem to help define the rest of what's on this list. Martin Luther articulates it this way in his commentary on Galatians. The apostle saith not the works of the spirit, as he said the works of the flesh. But he adorneth these Christian virtues with a more honorable name, calling them the fruit of the spirit. For they bring with them most excellent fruits and commodities. For they that have them give glory to God, and with the same do allure and provoke others to embrace the doctrine and faith of Christ. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against all of these things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As we live by the Spirit, let us 
also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. God calls us to pursue peace where possible. This is not to say that we remain silent on matters of faith to, quote, keep the peace. For true peace is in accordance with the Spirit of God, in whom we must give glory. If the peace we are pursuing causes us to subvert the truth, it is no peace. Matthew 5, when Jesus is laying out the Beatitudes, the attitudes of his people, because each of these attitudes leads us to him. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because they are the sons of God. They will not become the sons of God if they are peacemakers. They are peacemakers because they are the sons of God. And what greater peace is there than peace with God? Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained by faith, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So then, we have covered two illustrations of the Christian life, a skeleton and fruit. The Spirit allows us to bear fruit that is pleasing to God. And what we call the fruit of the Spirit, this idea of how we should walk as Christians, we see in Romans 12, forms the skeleton of our service to the King. And Romans 12 closes, similar to how it began. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. And it closes talking about holding our peace when we are reviled, talking about not avenging ourselves, but giving place for God's wrath, because vengeance is mine. So if, you're hungry, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. In doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. There's a certain way we go about the world, dealing with difficult people that leads to this that can lead to the conviction of the holy spirit against them because of our conduct and we'll continue fleshing this out as we keep going through Romans 13 there'll be some interesting bits in Romans 13 that build off of that as well but for today let us devote ourselves anew to this work of bearing fruit and being bolstered up in the new man. Not that we may look the part and become good people, but that our fruit may be acceptable to our Lord. Let us each examine ourselves to discern if we are an acceptable sacrifice, if our fruit is in fact godly, and if we are in need of correction so as to bear more fruit. All in all, this thing we call the Christian life is a journey of getting out of ourselves and getting into the things of the Spirit, in whom we have life and in whom our soul does indeed rest. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, You can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, You can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That's something that I've written, that's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4.